the police are able to use the press to make the white public think that 90% of the Negroes in the Negro community are criminals. Once the police have convinced the white public that the so-called Negro community is a criminal element, they can go in and question, brutalize, murder, unarmed, innocent Negroes, and the white public is gullible enough to back them up. Welcome, my people, to the second episode of How We Breathe. I'm Jonathan Stith, National Organizer for Bold. We're so excited to be here with you all. On How We Breathe, we share intimate conversations with the voices that don't often make it into the news. We explore how young leaders are building on the legacy of Black resistance while finding new political tactics to meet this moment. And we go intimate. We share the rituals, practices, and ancestors that have carried us forward, the dimensions of self-growth that are the seed of our collective transformation. Listen as we breathe. Today, we're picking up on the freedom journey with Candace Montgomery. She's a rising star and abolitionist working in Minnesota with Black Visions Collective, an organization she co-founded. Black Visions was building power among Black folks in Minnesota for several years before the national events thrust them into the limelight. We find Candace in a moment of deep personal and organizational reflection after a year of organizing around the murder of George Floyd. We spoke about what it means to find a shared political home as well as being at home within our own body. Let's get into it. Originally, I'm from Southern Florida, was born in Broward County, and then moved to Maine when I was about five or six years old with my family. You know, the the way that that goes is really just like being poor in Southern Florida was a lot harder (laughs) than being poor in Maine. And so that's the decision that my parents made. But, you know, I'm a person who's mixed race a person whose lineage is really from the South and grew up hearing stories about my great-grandmother and great-great-grandmothers as sharecroppers and as enslaved peoples. Yeah, so I would say that's part of my, my lineage, my people. And then, you know, my people today are very much other queer and trans Black people. That's both like my people and my family in many ways. I remember being in the car with my dad and that fear that I saw in his body when we got pulled over, you know, visiting him behind a plexiglass window, now sending, you know, $75 to my uncle every couple of weeks so he can buy ramen, like just wild shit like that. The ways that that has directly impacted my life and my family's ability to thrive is what keeps me up at night and also drives me to be unapologetic in what we're demanding of transformation and change and, you know, abolition of police and abolition of prisons. And for me, I think that's been a big part of what angers me and also pushes me forward is just the unfairness of the ways that Black folks, my family has have been pulled apart in our need to really be intentional about how we come together, about how we break bread, about how we support each other 
when shit gets hard. This love for her family and community, this awareness of what needed to change were part of Candace's early political journey. They became her North Star. You know, I went into college like, oh, I'm going to be a bio pre-med major. I'm going to help my community. You know, I'm also going to buy my mom a house, (laughs) like all these things. And quickly shifted as I started learning about organizing. But it wasn't until my senior year that my class that I was teaching went and visited a local community organization. The organizing director there, her name is Shannon Beatty. She was doing a training on power. And she was intentionally agitating people about their fear around power and their their perceptions around power. Um, and I remember distinctly in my head being like, I want to do this, what she's doing right now for the rest of my life. I want to have these kinds of conversations with young folks. I want to get people to understand that they do actually have power and then go and tell them to knock a bunch of doors and talk to people about their power. And that's exactly what we did, because right after that, we went and knocked a bunch of doors and got folks to register to vote and did things like that. And that was that moment. And so I actually asked her afterwards, I was like, yo, can you make money? (laughs) Like, can you pay your bills? And those were my real questions, because I knew I wanted to do the work, but I also knew it needed to be sustainable for me, um, because I had no home to go back to. I had no trust fund to, to lean on while I figured out my life. You know, we sat down for a one on one and she asked me about my life and what I wanted and put it into perspective to me that's like, you know, regardless of the salary, this is the work I wanted to do. Um, And I was very blessed that she then offered me a part time gig that turned into a full time gig after that and, and actually got me into being able to dedicate, you know, my time in a particular way to organizing and building my leadership up. I was working as a community organizer at an organization called the Alliance to Develop Power. It was based in Springfield, Massachusetts. My first job there was during the 2012 election. So I was climbing on the back of apartment buildings, knocking on people's doors, trying to convince them to register to vote and talk to them about some of the issues that were happening in Massachusetts at the time. When the movement for Black Lives really popped off in 2014, I had just turned 24 years old. I remember being a younger organizer and being like, man, this just doesn't feel sustainable. Like this doesn't feel balanced. Like this feels out of whack. Like, I don't know if I can do this forever because low key, I might just need a nine to five where I can clock out emotionally, you know, and like this not be tied up into so much of who I am. Black organizing, Black radical organizing asks you to be your full self and bring that in. And that's also a lot on your your body, your emotions. And, you know, a few years later, I'm in my mid-20s and really feeling a little bit more confident in, like, understanding what organizing is, understanding the kind of leadership that I wanted, but also having had really hard experiences, traumatic experiences, both with, you know, folks who I was with in the work and also external factors to the work. And so I did a lot of crying that year and was able to really have time to think about like, oh, my body has a lot of things to say about what's going on in my world right now. And having to kind of like shake myself open enough to actually be able to listen was a big part of my experience. First of all, I had applied for Bold twice before that. (laughs) So I was ready and excited to walk into Bold. And at the time it was 
oh, what's the year, 2016, had gotten a taste of centering and thinking about the ways that we show up and the ways that our trauma shows up and informs how we show up. That's kind of how I was walking into bold, um, but also walking in with a lot of hurt and processing of feelings of being in this really intense movement work and movement moment. Black organizers have been holding trauma for generations. In building the call for Black Lives Matter over the past decade, we've borne witness to a new level of grief. But there was no moment that made us confront our need for healing like the death of George Floyd. Black Visions was at the forefront in that moment, holding sacred ground in Minneapolis and turning this tragedy into an opportunity for Black people to own more power over their safety and their futures. Where George Floyd was murdered is a couple blocks from my front doorsteps. I think a lot of folks can relate to this who especially work on policing, but you know, when someone is murdered in our city by police, I usually get a, I start to get a slew of texts. And usually those start as local folks being like, hey, did you hear about this? Check this out. You know, they just published this thing. Someone else, you know, has been murdered by the Minneapolis Police Department. And it's always this weird moment of like, is this one that we're going to respond to? You know, which is a question that movement has to ask itself a little bit deeper. Um, and I think tries to and wants to more, but um, with George Floyd, it, it was very, really clear that this was something that folks were ready to respond to, especially due to the fact that, you know, community members witnessed him being suffocated in broad daylight. Cup Foods is a store that my dad gets his blunts at and my partner oftentimes walks across the street to grab us, you know, a little quick thing, a snack or, uh, you know, they have some a small produce section. The Black masculine folks in my life um, frequent that store often. And my partner had was about to go to Cup Foods that day and decided to go to the grocery store, grocery store, because we needed a few more things. And um, yeah, I mean, I cried just like from honestly pure relief that it wasn't one of, one of mine's directly. You remember being an unwilling witness, watching the video for the first time seeing the protests, or joining them yourself. We will never forget this time. Candace had been working hard at Black Visions to create a political home for others, especially Black trans folk who have been pushed away from their sense of belonging and family. She went into action. It felt like a rift opening up. The rage and grief inside of it was hard on her spirit. Another trauma on her body. So in 2021, in the midst of some incredible wins, she's still healing and reflecting. Black Visions is a baby organization. We started in 2017 and we got a lot of um, 
uh, attention and eyes on us very quickly in the uprising. You know, when we started Black Visions, we started it because many of us were part of Black Lives Matter Minneapolis or whatever, and um, were burnt out by responding to Black death and not actually having a Black left organization to build sustainably this work in this fight. And so our, our commitment has always been to build a sustainable strategic and visionary organization. Black Visions work to build on their existing campaigns to drive the need for change into the heart of political debate and make the demands for real change that the community wanted. Let's pause here to let my abolitionist friend and bold alumni, Andrea Ritchie, put things into context. She's a police misconduct attorney and organizer whose writing, litigation, and advocacy have focused on policing and the criminalization of women and LGBTQ people of color for the past two decades. I think this past few years, um, and particularly the past year, has reflected a collective realization or more people coming to that collective realization and and the realization that policing does not produce safety and there's no way to make it produce safety and there's no way to get the system that condones and produces and perpetuates police violence to hold anyone accountable for that. Like it's, (laughs) it's literally producing that. It's not going to be the place we're going to get justice for that. And so an understanding of actually defunding divesting and abolishing being the only form of accountability that's actually going to work. You know, we're seeing that now in Minneapolis, where obviously it's not an issue of one officer. It's not an issue of even the number of officers who colluded in and, and participated in that. It's, it's an entire department and it's an entire system that invests in policing as public safety when in fact it's looting resources from the things we need to produce public safety. You know, where we are at right now is we've helped to found and build a campaign and are now part of a coalition called the Yes for Minneapolis, which is proposing a ballot initiative to change our city's charter. And what that will do uh, will eliminate the police department and establish a department of public safety. Right now in our city, the only department that is required, that is written into our charter is the police department. So this is really important and significant because it it allows us to actually build the kind of infrastructure and place to put money for alternatives to policing to address harm, to address conflict and interpersonal violence in community actually have a real place that is not led by police and that actually is the boss of police. We collected over 20,000 signatures. Our petition has been passed by the city and now we're moving it on to actually getting the ballot language ready so that folks can vote on it in the fall. Newsflash. On September 7th, the Minneapolis City Council held an emergency meeting to adopt a citizen-initiated measure to replace the Minneapolis Police Department with a Department of Public Safety. It was the direct result of the strategic efforts of young leaders working with Black Visions. But after all the protests and mobilizing, there's also a need to regroup. Part of our story about where we're at right now is like really trying to learn lessons from last year and be accountable to the ways that we may have caused harm or are moving too fast. 
may have actually hurt or eroded trust with the folks that we want to be building with. So that as these moments of the whirlwind come up, because we all know that they will continue to come up, that we are much more resilient and fortified internally to know how to navigate and move those in ways that both help to grow our movement and transform the systems that we are fighting against, as well as keep us safe together, keep us well together. Yeah, define our joy rooted in our ability to stay connected, our ability to not lose each other, and our ability to find play and to find pleasure in those moments as well. I have a lot of gratitude for that commitment and I have a lot of gratitude for being in, in shared practice with other Black organizers who want to who wanna figure out how to make this, um, this work be rooted in a culture that really affirms our, our lineage, our heritage, and our whole bodies. Candace has taught us that the journey of growth isn't linear, but the most important thing is remaining connected to the community that holds and cares for us. We're so grateful to Candace for joining us and sharing her story. Thank y'all for listening and Black love. This podcast is a quarterly offering by Black Organizing for Leadership and Dignity, creating powerful spaces where organizers gather to experience embodied leadership, deeper relationships, resilience, and Black joy. How We Breathe is written and produced by Niyasha Lang and edited and produced by Eddie Hemphill.